Welcome to the Grand Rapids Local History Podcast. I'm Matthew Ellis. I'm Jessica Kroll. And I'm Travis. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about something super exciting, and that is Matt's new book, A Hidden History Yay. of Grand Rapids. Uh, first, I want to say congrats. That's um, absolutely awesome. I'm uh, really looking forward to finishing this. Um, Thank you. And telling all my friends about it. I'm super excited. I, I agree, Matt. Congratulations are certainly in order. It's a wonderful read. Every page, every sentence is, is interesting, and you turn the page and there's something else new. The pictures are wonderful, and I feel like you can dive into anything with your footnotes and kind of get as deep as you want with other sources, and I, and I, and mm-hmm. I love that. Much of the history you talk about is indeed hidden, and I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I wanted it to be not something that, you know, the ordinary uh, Grand Rapidian would feel intimidated to pick up or, or something like that. I wanted it to be accessible, and and I kind of took the approach that we take with the podcast, you know, just to do little topics here and there that some people might not realize have a, a really fascinating history. I agree. That's what I was going to say is that it really does go along with the podcast, and that we've talked about things that mm-hmm. I did not, you know, previously know about, like the USS Grand Rapids, the interesting ghost stories. So I'm excited that this book takes an even deeper dive into those. Yeah. Topics. And there are there are other history books of Grand Rapids. There are some some reference books about Grand Rapids, and those are also really great reads. I appreciate that you've mixed those sources in mm-hmm. and, and given us an avenue to, to dive deeper if we want well, without, you know, hitting us over the head with with too many technical details or dates or calendars. And it's going to fit really well in the history of Grand Rapids. I could see this in, um, you know, I would love to see this in like the little like gift shops in Grand Rapids. This is the kind of stuff that I look for is the, the really niche, not super, you know, a textbooky stuff. If I'm looking mm-hmm. for something historical, I want it to be interesting and I want it to keep my attention. And I, I think this is something that I could see myself like picking up if I walked into a bookstore. Mm-hmm. So do you think I'll uh, win the Pulitzer? I think you. I think you, I think you do, Matt. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll give you an honorary um, Pulitzer. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> um, like I said, I haven't finished this yet. I started reading it on a travel day, but I guess I just have some general questions about the book, about your process, things like that, that I'm, I'm personally curious to know. So my first question is just, why did you write this? Um, so uh, Arcadia, it's, it's through uh, Arcadia Publishing, and they actually reached out to me. They saw a program I did for History Detectives. Uh, I did a program on our uh, mugshot book here at the archives. And Arcadia saw that and they reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in, in publishing uh, with us? We, we saw your program and we really enjoyed it. Um, and I, you know, I tried to play it cool. I was like, that might be interesting. I might be interested in that. But of course, I was like, yeah, of course. Um, that mugshot book is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love looking at that. Yeah, I was, I was able to incorporate some of that in, into the book. There, there are a few cool mugshots. You as an individual, you have, first of all, you're, you're fairly youthful. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> com- comparatively, of course, speaking mm-hmm. for me, this is not 
your first experience or your first foray into history, correct? This is something that you've done for for years. Uh, are we getting close to a decade now? Pretty close. Um, I, I started with the city in 2015, and in, I think my first foray was doing a compiling a history for Mary Freebed in 2000 or uh, 2013. So yeah, yeah, this year it'll be it'll be a decade. I, I really appreciate, and I say this with all sincerity, I appreciate your youthfulness. So down the the alley from, from my house is a, a museum, and it's a county museum, and it has really interesting things, like the writing desk that Woodbridge and Ferris used when he was uh, governor. I appreciate that museum a lot. We've been there. And one thing that I've noticed is that there 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 is, for lack of a better term, maybe not so much youthfulness involved mm-hmm. In, in that historical museum. I do think it's important to note that it's great to see someone with some youthfulness involved in the in history because it's important to everyone, not just uh, older folks. So thank you for having that dedication. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it helps with the, the outreach too, you know, um, being able to use like Instagram and, you know, like the medium of podcasts too um, to, to reach a wider audience because a lot of people when I talk to them about the city archives, they have no clue that it's here and no clue that it's available for, for people to use as a great resource, spreading the word as much as possible. We'll, we'll keep doing that. I think it's good. And, and uh, Hidden History of Grand Rapids is another way that you can help share that history and bring yeah. some of that to light. So, I, I always uh, joke that my poor wife had to listen to me come home and just tell her endless amounts of history trivia. Um, and so now this is a way that I can direct those energies uh, to other people. Are you sure it wasn't her idea to suggest to Arcadia <laughs> yeah, that maybe, yeah. he, could you have him write a book? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of your wife, I love your dedication um, oh, thank you. In the book to her and but uh, mostly your four huskies. Yeah, yeah. I had to in- include them. I, I do mention um, sled dog races a little bit in the book. I had to had to get some uh, huskies in there somehow. How long did it take you to write this and what was your process like? Um, so it took about a year, maybe a little less than a year. Um, I had quite a lot compiled just randomly. You know, I had notes from podcast episodes um, that we did and and just stuff that I've squirreled away over the years that I found interesting. But it was it was pretty challenging sometimes to to form it into like a cohesive narrative. And then, of course, finding the the information for chapters that that no one had delved into was was a bit challenging. Process-wise, um, I tend to procrastinate, so I would I would work really hard on a chapter and then I would leave it for a couple weeks and jump to another chapter. So I kind of wrote them back and forth. Uh, I think it's important to note that that while there are a few maybe sentences or, or, or touch points that we have covered on the podcasts, this is not a summation of, of what we've done with the podcast. There certainly is new and, and interesting information on here. So don't don't expect the book to be a rehash. It is certainly fresh and new, and, and uh, we're excited to get some new ideas from it as well. Yeah, that actually leads to another question, is that um, did Arcadia 
have a length limit for you or a word count that you needed to reach? And how did you choose the specific topics that you included in your book? Yeah, so so they did have um, uh, a word count. I think it was like 40,000 words or so. And it was it was pretty hard to narrow down topics. There, there are, are some things that I left out that I'm thinking like, oh, maybe can I do like a volume two or something? You know, I had to leave things on the table, let things like the history of tattoos isn't in there, um, tattoos in the city. Uh, so there's there's definitely things that I could have um, put in, but just due to time constraints and size constraints, um, I wasn't able to add. But there are other avenues to share that share that information. I'm very interested in learning the history of tattoos in Grand Rapids. I think that you should definitely do a volume two. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. What was your favorite part about writing the book? So the writing process and then what was your favorite topic that you researched? So my my favorite, so I've got my favorite like historical fact and that was in the, the chapter on food and a um, coffee roaster was arrested in Grand Rapids for replacing 25% of his coffee beans with roasted peas to to try and cut costs uh, in the hopes that no one would notice that their coffee tastes like peas. <laughs> I, I've gotten that coffee at a gas station before, so I, I, I hope it's still enforced. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the coffee segment is is really interesting as well. Like, I don't want to go too deep into this there there is a a history of coffee roasters and i think that's wonderful yeah yeah when i when i started delving into that uh history it was a lot deeper than i thought it would be but my favorite my favorite chapter is chapter two and it's titled for humanity's sake and it's it's about how the history of grand rapids can't be separated from the people that live in the city and the people that that affect this the history like the people are the drivers of Grand Rapids history and so it, it, it it's an interesting chapter it, it delves into the history of Shel- Sheldon Avenue and how citizens petitioned for changes on the street and I delve into kind of the, the makeup of those petitions and the people that lived there and, and how different they were and then over time, how the people that lived there changed. And then I delve into kind of more serious topics, such as the the history of Chinese immigration to the city. Grand Rapids um, is the place where the first Chinese immigrant to America gained citizenship. He was a, a traveling speaker, traveling throughout the United States, and he was in Grand Rapids, and somebody from the crowd suggested that he apply for citizenship here in town, and he did. So I think it's, it's just a, a really unique history that hasn't been explored yet. There was um, a small Chinatown here in Grand Rapids with some really influential Chinese immigrants, but they, you know, they were they were persecuted to to some degree and had a lot of hardships. And then I delve into the experience of German Americans during World War One. I. I found a really, really interesting and and kind of sad story about a woman named Mary Gutzeit, who, you know, her her grandfather 
or maybe it was her great great grandfather had fought in the revolutionary war against the british and then her father had fought in the civil war and she had married a german who didn't become a citizen here in town and because of that and because of the the kind of arcane laws of the time she was labeled as a foreign enemy because of her marriage because women back then their citizenship only came from their husband and so she had to register with uh, Kent County Kent County had German Americans who who weren't uh, naturalized they had to register and even even those that were naturalized had to register but it's just you know her whole family had fought for freedom in this country and then all of a sudden just because of the person that she married she was labeled as a foreign enemy and it's ironic because 3 days before she had to register she had volunteered with the women's council of national defense to sign up for war work to help the united states so just a really really interesting kind of kind of sad story I think you do that very well. I think that you tie the humanity to the history and that's for me I greatly appreciate that. It's it's not just facts and figures and mm-hmm. documents. It's it's that delving into what would this person have done or these individuals or these groups. It's it's something that I find interesting, you know, history involves humans and that mm-hmm. humanity is is inseparable. I, to me that's part of what makes this book and what makes our conversations uh during podcasts interesting. I'm an idiot listening to a smart person talk. <laughs> about really interesting things. And I think you've you've continued that voice in your book. Thank you. I second that. And that's really important to add that humanity perspective to stories because that's something that the subjects themselves would appreciate. When I was a reporter and regularly doing stories in Grand Rapids for WGVU, that's something that I really looked into was the, you know, the human aspect of that because there is a human mm-hmm. behind every story and they matter right. too. Mm-hmm. Um, what they went through, their feelings, their emotions, all that. It's really important because you don't know who's going to connect with that Mm -hmm. and so i appreciate you did that Mm -hmm. and i mean it's exacerbated in in the historical records because a lot of historical records you know they leave off names or they don't mention the people and so it takes a lot of digging and kind of bringing to light some of that the hidden movers behind history well thank you for doing that and i hope that others who read your book feel that way too Do you want to touch on a a few points that I had noted, or do you want to be more general? I don't want to give anything away. We can give some things away. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) So my notes started about halfway through the book. So so we can start with earlier points. You mentioned chapter two, uh, which was about the humanity of history. And I, Mm -hmm. I think that that's well done. I'll skip ahead to kind of the the food and animals sections, which which come later on. One of the things that I found interesting was kind of that horses were used as collateral. And I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, that's that's something that you would expect to see in an old Western. It happened in a relatively big city uh, up until not too long ago as well. Right, uh, right. That's interesting. The humans have always used locomotion or or means of transportation as uh, a form of currency to some extent. Mm -hmm. I thought I loved the quote from the firefighter who was interviewed when they started replacing horses with automobiles. He said it was like losing a brother because he had worked with these horses 
something like a V6 doesn't replace my friends. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The friendship there, I think, was, was an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another one, and we, we've talked briefly about this in the past, but a quote that stuck out to me was that perhaps the best way to capture birds was to soak the bird seed in whiskey. And yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably to this day uh, would be a fairly effective way to, to capture birds. Yeah, I just I just found it so surprising that, you know, you can't imagine somebody walking into City Hall today with like a bag of like 700 birds that he's captured to get a, his bird bounty. It's and whiskey crazy. had to have been, I mean, it had to cost something. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so you've got your money in and then you've got to balance that. What was it, a dime a bird or something like that? Yeah, so, yeah something like that. Yeah, how, how he made that financial investment decision, I think, was, was interesting. <laughs> right. And and then another to circle back to the to the history of sewer. I have worked with another department in the city, and they were capturing the history of of sewer in Grand Rapids, which doesn't sound great, but it's another one of those things where when you peel back layers, you realize how much work went into this. Um, mm-hmm. how skilled these tradesmen were working without computers. And it's fascinating to me. Yeah, we can shout out uh, Kane Ferrier. Yeah, um, yep. she's She's been doing a lot of that research. And, and I, I did give her a shout out in the book, too. One surprising note that I learned was, was that the sewage treatment area uh, it has kind of remained the same in the southwest side of town near the Grand River. But one thing that was very important to the folks who were in charge of designing that area was to put fruit trees. Yeah, orchards, they had a, a big orchard. Gardens, grounds for folks to grow food. Mm-hmm. And uh, up until it became or up until it was learned that it wasn't necessarily safe, probably in the 50s, 1950s, you know, when, when times were hard, you could Go work some land on the sewage treatment area, and you could get some fruit, get some grain, potatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that that community happened in a place you wouldn't expect, mm-hmm. right right next to the sewage treatment area. Yeah, we have this really cool map that shows where all of the fruit trees were planted in their orchard. It's it's really interesting, and and like reading the different names of the apples too. Some some I recognized, like Macintosh, and some were uh, a little more foreign to me. Yeah, they certainly diversified. Uh, I, and I think that there's some, I mean, perhaps there was an experience with a, a crop failure because of monoculture or something of that mm-hmm. nature. It probably wasn't that macro, but uh, it's interesting that they wanted some diversity nonetheless. Do you know if any of these fruit trees are still in existence? I don't think so. I, I don't think they, they, I mean, they might have replanted them elsewhere, but... That would be, yeah, that would be a long life for fruit trees, but I, I don't know if any were grafted or, or transplanted. I, there may or may not be ideas to help kind of restore some of that diversity to the area, but uh, I think that would be a, an interesting challenge for, for folks today to create something like that. Mm-hmm. We'll have to poke some people, get them on it. Yeah, yeah. But while they replant those, uh, we can also celebrate, what was it, the Iris Festival? That's that's always rolling around in the back of my head, especially this time of year when, when you know things are gray and dreary. You're looking for some bright cheeriness uh, come spring. Uh, Jess, you mentioned you know bringing back some some things from the past, and and you know irises were certainly celebrated at one point. Grapes yeah. were a, were a big thing in the area, and that really I just didn't expect grapes to be a thing 
that was mm-hmm. mentioned in a history book. But there's yeah. a good reason for that. And Matt, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. There was a um, farmer in Grand Rapids. Yeah, it was it was a friend of Charles Garfield, uh, William K. Munson, and he had a large blue grape that he called the king grape and it was a new variety and they went to the american pomological association but the association wouldn't award him a a medal because they said his grape was too too similar to another grape and so charles garfield he he took like seven years i think it was to convince the American Pomological Association to actually recognize that this grape was its own variety and was only grown in Grand Rapids. And they finally did. They awarded him, William K. Munson, they awarded him a bronze medal for his king grape. Whether or not we can still get king grapes, I don't know. I suspect not. But it, Yeah, it's, I, don't, it's, I don't think so. It's not the only fruit or vegetable that Grand Rapids has highlighted, because as we've talked about earlier, was it cauliflower or or I think it was lettuce? Lettuce. That's yes. correct. Lettuce. Grand Rapids big, lettuce. I think that's really unique, and like I said, something you wouldn't necessarily expect to read about in a history book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tried to uh, for for the photographs in the book. I tried to source them from collections that haven't been published elsewhere. So a lot of the photographs that are in the book, you know, this is the only place aside for here at the city archives and on the city archives website that these are found, especially some of the blueprints. You know, these these haven't been published, published elsewhere. You accurately described these engineers. The blueprints are fascinating and incredible yeah. to look at and the detail i've i have a, a history in the construction industry and i've looked at a lot of blueprints and boy i'll tell you there is not the same level i know we have cad i know we have other softwares that can draw lines and curves and tell us the detail we need but it's not hand drawn it's incredible and just looking at those drawings alone to me i kind of get the feeling of, okay, I understand why these buildings are around now after 100 years or after 150 years. Right. Just the time that went into drawing the blueprints to build the building. And then you look <laughs> at the materials, Oaklawn Cemetery, beautiful building is still there. Mm-hmm. You can kind of get a feeling for why they're still there. Yeah, yeah. The care and detail that they took to, to draw with like intricate lettering and they're, they're definitely works of art. Uh, and speaking of some of the pictures, uh, you you talked about the mugshot book, and we've I believe Jess and I both had a chance to to flip through those pages. It's a very large book. It's talked about often mm-hmm. for a reason. It's it's really fascinating to see uh, what we would consider fairly dapper dressers having their mugshots taken in in suits and ties and sometimes fancy hats. And oh yeah, uh, just from that aspect alone, it's interesting. You t- uh, show a picture of one uh, John M. Leonard mm-hmm. towards the back mm-hmm. of the book, and this guy. I mean, movies, a trilogy oh, yeah. could be yeah. created about these this guy's misadventures. Um, and it wasn't just in Grand Rapids. He was around Kent County. He was around Ottawa County. He was around Lake County. I mean, he went up to Baldwin. He went up to Osceola County and Reed City. This guy was everywhere. His escapades, because there were escapes, there were captures, there were lies, there were forgeries. He could have movies written about him. And uh, his mugshot photos are very unassuming. You would not 
look at this gentleman and think, well, there's a criminal mastermind right there. But for that time, I would consider him. I mean, he was a mastermind. Yeah, he he had to have been because he was able to argue one of his cases all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court by himself. And when I found that in the newspaper, I was like, oh, that that must be just a fabrication of his because all, all throughout researching him, I came across stuff that he just made up. But I was able to find the Michigan Supreme Court records for his case. And I'm just like, how did he do that? And he wasn't a lawyer. He's, right. He was just a guy. Yeah, he was just yeah. a regular guy. I think it would be much harder for I think it it was easier to be a criminal 100 years ago or 150 years ago where you could drive or take your horse 50 miles away and no one may know about you. Mm -hmm. So I think that he had some element of that going on, uh, like no one could just pop him into the Google or do a background check with your social security number. But still, the fact that he was able to get into all kinds of mischief for Mm -hmm. decades. Yeah, tracking down the aliases that he used and like searching papers for those names was it was like finding a needle in a haystack because you never really were sure whether or not the the article was about him or some other guy that he he had just appropriated somebody else's name and so it was really tough to to actually confirm some of these some of these wild tales that he was telling well, i think you did a good job putting it in perspective that blurb alone is 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 one a very interesting blurb i would totally watch a true crime doc on this guy i mean he looks i don't know he look. i'm getting like bank teller vibes from him yeah so to see somebody so normal looking just a nice trimmed mustache and combed hair and and suit and tie i i I, I, some guy who did bad stuff and i want to know more about him Uh uh-huh I, I was actually able to find more photos of him when he was in federal prison. He was a little younger and completely clean-shaven, and it was just so surprising to see him without his signature mustache. And we had talked about him not just doing this in Grand Rapids, but this was he went to Kansas for federal yeah. prison. Like, yeah, things happened in New York State, mm-hmm. uh, Boston. He was around and I, it, it, that he has some significant history here in Grand Rapids, I think, is is wonderful, wonderful for storytelling. Mm-hmm. The mugshot book is is great. Um, but there are also a few few aspects that I appreciated as well. And that kind of ties back into the humanity of things and art. You have a section on art and some of the history about that. And that's well and good. But specifically, you show pictures of of several different pieces of art and most are no longer around mm-hmm. in Europe. Your explanation of why some of these art pieces are no longer around, I think, put a pin in why history is important. Your thoughts on how some of these playground sculptures kind of disappeared is is interesting. Yeah, they from like 1970 to I think the early 80s, this put more public art in a wider swath of the city. And and even after that, as as far north as Riverside Park and over to John Ball Park and then even in some of the neighborhood parks. But, you know, they were they were art that was meant to be experienced physically, you know, climbed on and they had a purpose. Um, and I think that over time, people didn't see them as, as sculptures and only saw them as playground equipment. And so their importance, I think, faded from memory and the, they just disappeared. 
whether or not they were became too run down or were just updated, I haven't been able to to uncover. But yeah, I think only two survive. One is is Lori's button. Yep. And I, I think Lori's button is whimsical. To me, it gives that 70s vibe. And you can still go play it. In, I mean, maybe you can't. I don't know if that I would fit through the buttonholes. <laughs> um, but if you had offspring or nieces or nephews or, or something of that nature, you could certainly bring them over to Lori's button. Where did Lori's button start? Where was so, it initially launched? So it was it was originally on um, Calder Plaza, and it stayed there during Festival of the Arts. And then for a few weeks after that, but then they moved it to Anabawan Park, where it's stayed for the last, what, 40, 50 years? It's kind of unassuming over there. You may not even notice it towards the north end of the uh, Ford Museum. Mm-hmm. It's a big red button. Yeah. And I, I think it's I think it's kind of timeless, too. You know, like you could mistake it for an art prize piece. And I, I think its location, too, has aided its um, longevity. You know, I think if it was placed not in downtown, I'm, I'm not sure that it would have survived as long as it has. I think that's a, a fair assumption. There's there's one other piece of art that you're aware of, at least you talk about in this book, that is that is still in existence. And again, from the 70s. And the gentleman who designed this piece also gave us the current city logo and the fish letter. Yeah, the Kid Catwalk sculpture was uh, Joseph Kinnebrew. It was originally yellow, and I think they've repainted it red, I believe. I think it's red now. But it's from the 70s. It's still there. It's it's over in Fishletter Park, correct? Uh, it's it's across from Fishletter Park. So it's in uh, 6th Street Park, right across the river. Okay, okay. In the picture in the book, you can see the 6th Street Bridge in the background. Yeah. So that, that makes sense. Thank yeah. you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, whenever, whenever I'm over there, I always have to like balance on it. Just sure. For... <laughs> uh, and you can do that safely as you get older uh, and, and balance becomes more of an issue. It's only a, a few inches off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so even I can take that risk without uh, worrying, <laughs> worrying about a hip failure or something. Yeah. While we're on the topic of art. So we've talked in the past about things we'd like to see maybe brought back to the city. You know, Iris is being, being one of them. Uh, to dig more into that history. There is one example that I think is wonderful and would be a huge hit today if if it was brought back. And, and that's an example of art called animal forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, from the 70s and also uh, placed on the Calder Plaza. It was placed on the Calder Plaza because they, in essence, wanted to have something on that massive piece of concrete to mm-hmm. entertain people. This is something that the city has visited a number of times. Uh, m- most recently, in I believe 2018, the, the city has explored options for kind of what they call activating Calder Plaza. And it, it's this is, seems to be a cyclical thing, which mm-hmm. also seems to be fairly popular in humanity uh, cycles and history. The example of animal for- forms that you have pictured looks like the most fun toy I've seen in some time. <laughs> it, it, it's lovable, right? It's made out of pipes, steel pipes, and it's got this really fun, playful stance to it. But it looks very fun, very approachable. Didn't last long on the Calder Plaza, though. We don't know yeah. what happened to it, but it, it looks, and it's a black and white photo, but it looks just wonderful. I wonder if these missing things are just sitting in somebody's basement. Somebody could, somewhere knows could where be. they are. Yeah, it could be. 
some old guy is just having a blast playing uh, yeah yeah just (laughs) hanging out on it in his basement who knows maybe maybe uh, somebody will read the book and say oh i've got one of these animal forms in my basement and they'll bring it up and donate it back to the city Calder Plaza is still looking to be activated, so there's yeah. there's certainly uh, room for improvement there. I think that maybe Unsolved Mysteries should pick up this, <laughs> uh, especially after the dud of the Grand Haven episode. That may be a controversial statement, but I stand by it. But yeah, I, Matt, I really like that animal form sculpture. But Matt, do you see yourself writing more books? Like you mentioned earlier, would you ever um, entertain the idea of? doing a volume two of the hidden history of Grand Rapids or do you even see yourself expanding on that and maybe expanding past Grand Rapids a hidden history of Michigan a hidden history of the Midwest yeah yeah I'm definitely looking at trying to do a second book I really liked the the hidden history format I've even you know like as soon as I finished the book and submitted submitted it to printing I found more stuff that I could have added. And so maybe even like, you know, they do like the first edition, second edition. I would love to do something like that. Yeah. And then and then widening the scope. Yeah, I've I've got quite a lot of interest. So it's it's tough sometimes to to sit and focus on focus on one thing. But I really like uh, the idea of exploring the Midwest. And and I have an idea to do a book looking at national historic events but through the lens of one city and how uh, a single city like experienced the great depression or experienced the vietnam war or experienced like major historical topics that are usually only talked about on a national scale so i've got that got that in the bag it sounds to me intimidating to look at bigger events through the lens of one city to me that Mm -hmm. sounds challenging and intimidating Mm -hmm. Uh, just because there's so much material and there is so much documented the 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 information that you have come up with in response to some of our silly questions it's incredible and i hope you do because that's certainly something i i won't be able to to tackle not only does that sound intimidating but i think matt that might be something you might get a response of a lot of criticism from, you know, some guy who reads your book who was around during the Great Depression and grew up in Detroit. And he says, he says, no, that's not how that happened. But that's exactly why things like that need to be portrayed because mm-hmm. everybody experienced it differently. And that's why, uh, like I said earlier, it's so important to bring that humanity into it and look at it through different lenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. I think you do a good job of of saying this is this is a historical fact. This might be how this storekeeper experienced selling coffee that was twenty one percent dried peas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> a, a fact, but also through a personal lens. Right, both can, right. Both can coexist and do coexist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am excited to put this book on my gift list. My boss doesn't know it yet, but he's he's getting a copy. And it's remarkable to me that you covered two centuries, and I, I feel like you only scratched the surface mm-hmm. on a handful of things, even though this book is a hundred and some odd pages long. <laughs> really, really remarkable. 
and I hope that it, that it increases awareness for others, perhaps not in the West Michigan region or in Grand Rapids specifically. Mm-hmm. These slices of history exist everywhere, right? And I, I think that's oh, yeah. one of the important things to take away from it all. This history happened in small towns. This history happened in big cities. It's still happening now, mm-hmm. even though it's, it's hard to look at present day like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't know what what topics what interactions we have today will affect history and be uncovered by by future historians. Well, I cannot wait to uh, get my hands on a physical copy of this so I can mark it up and read it. I'm really interested in reading about the coffee and the peas because I think that's probably (laughs) what I had this morning before we started recording this. Um, Cool. Thank you both for being, uh, being able to talk about the book. I'm, I'm super jazzed about it. I've been, over the moon. Well, thank you for writing it. I, th- I think it's it's such a unique perspective and something that probably not a lot of people have done. So thank you. Yeah, I, I concur, Matt. I, I do feel like, um, and, and I've got most of the, the histories of Grand Rapids books, um, all are wonderful, all add to uh, to the total history of Grand Rapids. And I, I like I said, I think this is another piece that helps fill in some details, but also gives you the ability to really delve into specific things if you want. If you want to find out what species of apples were planted at the sewage treatment plant, you can do that. <laughs> and uh, I, maybe you will. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that's going to be the first thing people take away from it. But I, for one, would love to see some animal form figures return to Calder Plaza. And now that the city is, is more involved with what we call Art Prize, perhaps I can nudge some folks and make that happen. <laughs> I'm cool. just kidding. I, I can't. I don't, I don't do that kind of nudging. But... Perhaps someone listening will. If you have a missing sculpture hidden in your basement, email us at Grand Rapids Local History Podcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. Or even if you think it's a missing sculpture, we'll, we'll take a look at some weird stuff in the basement. <laughs> we'll send Matt first, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Tony and I sometimes will go out to, to see what people, interesting historical artifacts people scrounge up. Well, we're not going to encourage you to do house calls. That sounds like it could be another chap. Um, <laughs> Hidden archivists of Grand Rapids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't want that to happen. At least not until the second book comes out. Yeah. <laughs> but Matt, thank you for uh, for entertaining me over the holiday break. Jess, I'm glad you were able to find time to speak with us both. It's it's always a treat, and um, we're looking forward to the next discussion, which we've we've discussed, and it you know maybe sooner than later. Definitely. Yeah, I'm glad we could make this work and get together. I think this is super exciting and hopefully we can make this a little bit more regular. It's It's been three years since we've been doing this remotely and I think that's absolutely crazy, but we've we've managed to make it work. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And both listeners have, have really appreciated that. So <laughs> thank you all. <laughs> yeah, thank you both. Uh, thanks, Dana. We appreciate you. She's our number one fan. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So how do we want to end it? Well, that's all, folks. What did you say earlier? Did you say, so how should we end this? Yeah. Maybe that's how we end everyone. Yeah. So like how that. should we end this? So how and should then, we? And then noise from the cafe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just taper off uh, yep. us droning on about local history. I like it. I think that, that, I mean, that's what I would vote for, but um, my vote doesn't count for much. That's how I would end it. And, and we can play around with the ending, too. Uh, or we could since, since we, trick uh, them and... Yeah, it just never ends. Not end. Yeah, we'll just pick right up at the next one. They're almost done. Yeah, they're almost done.